Where can clinicians and attorneys turn for an in-depth understanding of coercive control, especially when supporting survivors of domestic violence? Dr. Christine Cochiola, a leading expert in the field of coercive control and parenting children who experience abuse in the home, offers abundant resources and trainings to meet those needs and more. And she's here to tell us all about it. I'm Maria McMullen, and this is Genesis, the podcast. Dr. Christine Cochiola is a coercive control advocate, educator, researcher, and survivor. She's a college professor teaching social work in the Connecticut college system for the last 20 years and is also an adjunct instructor at NYU. Her expertise is in the areas of intimate partner violence, trauma, and child abuse, developing and presenting workshops on these topics both nationally and internationally. Dr. Cochiola is a founding member and steering committee member of the International Coercive Control Conference and is also a board member of the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence. She has supported policy codifying coercive control and has a small private practice primarily serving victims and survivors of coercive control. She is the creator of the Protective Parenting Program, supporting protective mothers on their journey of healing their children. Dr. Cochiola, welcome back to the podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me, Maria. I appreciate it. So we've met before on this show to discuss the psychological terrors of coercive control and gaslighting. And I know you cover these subjects widely, creating not only awareness for their pervasiveness, but also how to recover from the trauma these forms of abuse can create. You have a new program that I want to bring to our audience's attention, and it's specifically for clinicians and attorneys who are serving the protective parent in cases of abuse. Tell us about the training and why it's so critical. Sure. So I think it's really important to highlight that there are so many amazing clinicians who are doing the hard work, mental health professionals who are doing the hard work, attorneys who are really advocating for victims and survivors. However, I think that we have a gap in understanding the pervasiveness of coercive control, that it truly is virtually the foundation of almost every single aspect of domestic abuse. And also that that gap sometimes leaves people wondering, hmm, is this high conflict? I mean, you know, the reality is there is no high conflict divorce. There is abuse. That's what it is. And so, you know, when clinicians are trying to support victims and survivors and maybe perhaps thinking, oh, this is a relational difficulty. This is perhaps, you know, two people who just aren't communicating well, when actually it might be one person who is a coercive controller. I speak from experience. I would go to therapist, to therapist, to therapist to try to figure out what was wrong with my own personal relationship with my partner. And sometimes that partner would engage, sometimes not. But the point is, is I began to recognize that I was actually sometimes by maybe not malicious intent, but by helping professionals being gaslit, like being 
made to believe that maybe I needed to communicate better. I needed to work harder. I had anxiety. I certainly had depression and all of these things that really, instead of pivoting to the perpetrator, right? And so I think sometimes the most well-intentioned people may miss the signs. So the training is really set up to create like a certification. Hey, I'm someone who understands coercive control. I not only understand coercive control, but I understand how it's inflicted, how it harms not only adult victims, but the significant trauma. Children are beyond witnesses, but they are actual victims of coercive control, whether that it's being exerted intentionally on them or otherwise. And then, you know, what to look for in the pathology of these abusers. You know, a lot of people like to call them narcissists. You know, I call them coercive controllers. I believe that there is a characterological trait that is impacted oftentimes, not always, by attachment difficulties. That's a clinical perspective that I take to my trainings. I I am a licensed clinical social worker. I've had training and, you know, certain pathologies, certainly in a a variety of them. And um, these people cannot often change. And of course, there's a spectrum. There are some really significant harms that are done and some that are maybe not quite as overt, but they're still extremely harmful. So how do we educate people to look for those signs? And then part of the training is also understanding what a victim presents as. Because victims will often present as highly anxious or what am I doing wrong or how can I fix this? And, you know, we don't have across the board an assessment tool, which is something I used in one of my research in my research study called Perfect Prey. It's, it's an assessment of what is it that is the characteristics. It's never a victim's fault. But are they people who work extra hard to make a relationship work? And when we see that as clinicians, that has to be a sign for us. What's going on here? Are both people working equally to try to fix this relationship? And so, and then what are best practices? What are the best strategies to support these victims and survivors, to support their children? What are the best practices? And actually, I decided because I heard from so many coaches and allies, people who work in agencies who really want to get like a certification in this that I created. So the the clinician attorney training is a three-day training. And it also, by the way, includes the complicitness of the court system and how the court actually misses the signs and how we need more people trained who work in the judicial system. But then, so that's a three-day intensive training happening um, May 5th, May 6th, and May 12th, Friday, Saturday, and then again, another Friday. And 12.30 to uh, 12 to 4.30 p.m. with breaks. Um, and there'll be, it's, I'm an educator, so I don't just lecture. It's, it's about interactive discussions and also activities to create a real true engagement in the content. But also then I, I decided to do a second training, May 19th and May 20th, specific, just two days but specific to coaches and allies, people who really want to level up their understanding of coercive control. Again, the trauma inflicted on these victims and the adult victims and their children and how best to serve these vulnerable populations. So I know that's a lot, but that's it. (laughs) No, I think it's really important for all of us to have this, you know, more in-depth understanding if we're serving survivors 
of domestic violence, domestic abuse, people who aren't sure if they're in an abusive relationship. Um, and as well, those who are, you know, going into the courtroom and potentially in an environment that they, they've never been in before that can then become very traumatizing and often is not very trauma informed. So I've noticed gaps in the availability of this type of trainings for the, the populations that you're talking about, clinicians who serve domestic violence victims and the courtroom professionals who either are representing them or interacting with them, uh, you know, throughout these cases. So I think it's critical to offer the training and spread that information widely so people know that it's available. How will these trainings that you are offering uh, next month in May, how are they different from anything else that's available? So as far as I can see right now, there really is not um, a coercive control. And, and so I think that I, you bring up some important points. There's a lot of a lot of people talk about trauma informed, which, of course, we all need to be trauma informed. But really, only clinicians who have been trained, I've been trained I've as a trauma trained clinician can really teach that. And so I'm hoping to impart my own trauma trained education to participants because you're absolutely right. That creates more trauma informed individuals. And so I think it's like, this sounds like a little bit like um, Pollyanna, but I think we can create a world, a sea of coercive control, trauma informed clinicians, coaches. By the way, it's not hard to become a GAL. I went on the state of Connecticut's website and it's, it's a, it's a very simple process. There is nothing in there about coercive control and about children being victims of domestic abuse. And I don't mean to diss the state of Connecticut, but I'm thinking they're probably all pretty similar. That means that I could become a, a trauma. I could become this, a GAL. Imagine if we had a C of coercive control trauma trained GALs working out there, deciding the best interests of children. I, I kind of came up with this idea because I'm like, how do we beat the system? We have GALs who don't understand this. And again, there are, I understand that it's not a level of harm. I, I'm going to assume the best of intentions, but people don't truly understand this. And then they are making decisions on shared parenting. They are making decisions to put children in positions where they are in harm's way. And I get that sometimes legislation supersedes everything. I get that. But how do we create a world, literally a world, where we replace the GALs who don't get it or they get educated? Come on get educated. We replace them or, or, or they get educated. And then we have people in positions. It's a position of power in the court system who can make better, the best, have best practices in place for our children. And so, you know, you know, Maria, that that's like my, like about how the children are harmed so significantly. So I don't know of other training. There's GAL trainings. Again, I do not believe that GALs are trained to understand what coercive control is. They are looking, this is the problem. We live in a society that right now 45 states look at the violent incident model to determine domestic abuse. Right. They're not looking at coercive control. And so if we have 45 states that don't even look at that, and we have five states that have legislation that codify it as a nonviolent, perhaps 
domestic abuse. Okay, great, coercive control, but still not being accepted and readily engaged with the, the judicial and the criminal justice system. That's a problem. Well, how do we beat the system? That's what, that's what I'm trying. That's what I hope to do. I, I think you're right. You know, having these conversations, continuing to talk about the issues and then offering these types of solutions on our own because they don't really exist elsewhere or people are not participating in them or both is critical to changing the future for children. And when yes. you the future for children, you change the future for everyone because that next generation are going to be the people who are leading us. You know, when when we're older, they, they are the up and coming leaders of tomorrow. And it's important that we have their best interests at heart. But I want to ask you a question um, because you said this several times, GALs. Can you just tell me what that stands for? So that's a guardian ad litem. Okay. Those are the attorneys that are hired and you can be an attorney or a clinician. So if you are a licensed clinician anywhere um, or an attorney, you can become certified as a GAL. And that is the person who is hired to basically be the voice of the child. And so there may be a forensic evaluation with these children where a clinical psychologist or a social worker does a clinical eval on the child. That also may occur. But the GAL often is the one who has the information and makes the decision. I can't tell you. It's so sad how many times I have heard over and over again where guardian ad litems are not clearly seeing the coercive control occurring. And so they make decisions based on high conflict, assuming that a victim is maybe exaggerating what is really occurring rather than clearly seeing. And you know this, these coercive controllers are charlatans. They present very well. They are non for lack of a better word, victims and survivors often are fully emotive because they're losing custody of their children or they're losing as much custody as they had to someone who was abusive to them. I mean, you know, like it's like I use the example. It sounds sounds trite, but if you knew that you were giving your puppy to an abuser, would you be having a heart attack? Mm -hmm. You would be. Yet the court system thinks that when a person is upset about that, that there's something wrong with them. No, 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 no. That's the other part of this. Like if I've always been a protective parent, the one that brings my child to their appointments, goes to school meetings and am engaged in all of their activities and I have never harmed them my entire life, why would we assume that now I'm going to alienate, quote unquote, turn them against another person? The only reason why I'm going to be protecting them is because that is my role. That is what I want to do. And so too often the narrative gets flipped, the deny, attack, reverse victim and offender occurs, the abuser, the course of control will say, oh, she's trying to keep me from my children. What? She's always been the protective parent. She's just trying to protect her child. And, you know, I think just understanding that we need to begin to see clearly, we need to pivot to the perpetrators. Who are they? Right. And how are they tricking? us. And let's, let's clearly begin to discern that. Agree. I fully agree. So at the end of the trainings, is there uh, CEUs available or certification of some kind? 
Sure. So I'm in the process of getting CEs for social workers approved. Um, you can imagine it's cumbersome. I, I don't have, I don't know if I'll have it approved by May 1st. I hope so. Um, but certainly going forward, um, I will definitely have that ability and I'm sure I can, um, backlog that, you know, it's the same training. So if somebody leaves my training in May and they don't have the CEs yet, they will, I will be able to send them to them. So, um, that's the hope. Yeah. And certificate of completion or some type of certification. Yes, a badge. It says, you know, it says my business name and um, it's a badge that actually says that somebody's a course of control, trauma-informed attorney, course of control, trauma-informed coach, whatever, whatever their role is when they present to the training. So I also really would love to begin to engage um, social work students, clinical, you know, counseling students, students in schools. Um, and I do have a, a very short webinar. It's like an hour long where um, it's not a certification, but it's for anyone who just wants to learn about coercive control and allies. Um, anybody who really, I always hear from protective um, parents like that no one in their family gets it or like their friends don't really understand what's going on. Because again, it's so insidious. It's so difficult to recognize the signs. And so I created this little short webinar, like I said, an hour long, just just to give, you know, if you wanted to share it with someone you love and say, hey, this is what I experienced. This is what is really going on in my life. This is why I'm constantly in court. You know, I'm always amazed at the people who don't even realize this is such a huge problem. So tell us where people can get more information and where they can register. What is the website? Sure. Coercive Control Consulting. Also, people can go to iknowyourheart.com because that is a direct link to my website. So either or Dr. Cochiola, I have several links. So yeah. And they can register right there on the website? Yeah. If they go to the website, there'll be a link um, under uh, webinars and trainings. And when they go there, they can see my various webinars and also this training. Perfect. Thank you so much for sharing this information with us today. And I hope that it's a very robustly attended program as it should be. Oh, thank you, Maria, so much. I, I do hope that word gets out that at the very least, you know, we start getting more and more people trained to advocate for the best interests of this vulnerable population. Totally agree. Thank you. Attention Spanish-speaking listeners, listen to the end of this podcast for information on how to reach a Spanish-speaking representative of Genesis. Atención hispanohablantes, escucha este podcast hasta el final para recibir información de cómo comunicarse con el personal de Genesis en español. If you or someone you know is in an abusive relationship, you can get help or give help at genesisshelter.org or by calling or texting our 24-7 crisis hotline team at 214-946-HELP, 214-946-4357. Bilingual services at Genesis include text, phone call, clinical counseling, legal services, advocacy, and more. Call or text us for more information. Donations to support women and children escaping domestic violence are always needed. Learn more at genesisshelter.org slash donate. Thanks for joining us. I'm reminding you always that ending domestic violence begins when we believe her. Genesis, el podcast, anuncia servicios bilingües disponibles en Genesis Women's Shelter y Support. Si usted o una conocida está en una relación abusiva, puede recibir ayuda o dar ayuda a genesisshelter.org 
o por llamar o mandar mensaje de texto a nuestra línea de crisis de 24 horas al 214-946-4357. Servicios bilingües de Génesis incluyen mensajes de texto, llamadas, consejería, servicios legales, asesoría y más. Llámenos o mándenos un text para más información. Siempre se necesitan donaciones para apoyar a los, las mujeres o a los niños escapando de la violencia doméstica. Aprende más a nuestra página de internet en genesisshelter.org barra inclinada donate. Gracias por unirse con nosotros. Recuerden que el terminar la violencia doméstica empiece cuando creemos a la víctima.